Hi, this is Tony Campolo. The name of the show is From Across the Pond. Generally, uh, Shane Claiborne is here with me uh, to produce this show, but he's out on the road. I'll tell you about that a little later, but let me tell you right now, uh, this show is to promote Red Letter Christianity, a movement that has uh, grown up here in the United States and is uh, existent in Germany and in the United Kingdom. It's an attempt to redefine those of us who have orthodox Christian beliefs but don't want to use the word evangelical anymore because the word evangelical, especially here in the United States, is associated with right-wing politics, more specifically with Donald Trump. And there are many of us who believe the Bible, believe the Apostles' Creed, talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus— but we don't want to go by the word evangelical. And so uh, we came up with a new definition. We call ourselves Red Letter Christians. Red Letter Christians. Go to our website, redletterchristians.org. Find out what we're all about. And if you like us, you can sign on and say, I want to be one with you. We need as many signatures as we can because it enhances our uh, viability with the press. I have a guest on the show with me today. Um, he's an interesting guy, uh, Timothy McMahon King. Uh, Timothy McMahon King uh, likes to be referred to as a vagabond extraordinaire. Wow, what a title. Uh, welcome, Timothy, and please explain to us why you like the title vagabond uh, extraordinaire. Thanks for having me on, Tony. I didn't know you would actually read that on the show. Uh, the word vagabond has been something that described my life over the past few years. I had been in Washington, D.C., working at Sojourners, where we had first met, and then left to come back uh, uh, to my home state of New Hampshire. Uh, but in the mean, like in the in the between phase, I also bounced around Europe for a while, anywhere from working on a goat farm in Turkey to an apprenticeship with a butcher in Italy. So that has been my vagabonding, and I think the best way to describe my life in the past few years. You've written a book, Timothy. Uh, you've written a book, and uh, uh, the title of the book is Addiction Nation. What in the world is this book about? Well. When I moved from D.C. to New Hampshire, one of the first things that I started to notice is it seemed like every day in the newspaper, I was hearing about another person overdosing from opioids. And as I kept hearing these stories, I at first kind of looked at that and asked myself, how could anyone get to the place where they are uh, destroying their own life because of a substance like that? And at the same time, I was reliving these memories of when I had been in D.C. I had gone into the hospital and had been in the ICU. I went into acute respiratory distress. The doctors gave me a 50-50 shot of whether I would live or die. And that entire time, I was on increasing amounts of opioid pain medications. And it was completely appropriate. They were important as helping with my pain and as I was coming out of the hospital. But at the same time, I didn't realize until months after I left the hospital that I was facing a new life-threatening complication, and that was an opioid addiction. And so at the same time that I saw these lives being destroyed and felt this, on one hand, a, a repulsion there of how could this be happening, I also felt a connection and knowing that 
I had had those times in my life where I felt like I was losing control, losing my own freedom, losing my ability to choose because of a substance. And when I started to tell my story, I realized that it wasn't just about me. It wasn't an isolated incident, but that my story was one of millions of people here in the United States and across the world who struggle with addiction. Now, the word opioid, I never heard that word until about uh, three or four years ago. How would you define it for our listening audience who, like me, uh, live in a certain degree of ignorance of what's going on in the world? How would you define an opioid? So opioids have been with us for a long time. It's from the poppy plant. Um, the, te- the scientific term is Papaver somniferum. And it was original name was actually came from the Sumerians, and it was loosely translated the joy plant. Some people think that it actually predates the existence of alcohol. And so it's been a plant that has been known to humans for most of our history as a powerful medicine to ease pain and suffering and anxiety. But at the same time, as we see its usage over the centuries and over the millennium, um, we also see that it can take over a person's life and that addiction is always possible. And so since the, for the past few centuries in the United States, we saw um, the poppy plant in its more original form as opium slowly turn into morphine. And morphine was thought to help cure an opium addiction. And then we came up with heroin, which was supposed to cure a morphine addiction. And now today we have the even more powerful uh, synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil that are 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. So most of the overdoses you're seeing today in the United States aren't just from those old derivatives of the poppy plant, but these new synthetic materials that when they get into the drug supply, people don't know how powerful it is. And that's why so many people are dying today. Uh, well, some people say uh, addiction. Uh, uh, you can get addicted to sleeping pills. Uh, would you call that an opioid? So the opioid is specific to the interaction with the opioid receptors in our brain. So I got it. you can have a lot of different kinds of addictive substances like sleeping pills for some people. Um, but opioids are a particular uh, derivative and a uh-huh. particular chemical structure. And one of the reasons why opioids are so powerful isn't because they're so foreign to our brains and our bodies, but because of how much they actually closely resemble our naturally incurring endorphins. In fact, the word endorphin Um, which is the chemical that bonds us to each other. It gives us feelings of elation, bliss, and connects a parent to a child, lovers to each other. Um, Those endorphins, that word actually comes from the two words endogenous and morphine. Endogenous meaning occurring within and morphine because of how closely it resembles an opioid. And so when we're seeing today this mass use of opioids, we need to ask, what does this say not just about individuals but about society, that so many people are looking to replace and enhance these naturally occurring chemicals? And sometimes that's because of a physical pain, but also because of emotional trauma or social dislocation. If you're a minor from West Virginia who threw out their back and is in pain every day and is isolated and feeling a lack of meaning, and purpose because they no longer have a job, it actually makes sense that that person might turn to opioids for a feeling of relieving their physical pain, but also to give them a sense of connection even as they're growing more isolated. Uh, Let me ask this. Uh, Don't you need a prescription to get this drug? Uh, And uh, if uh, 
If a person doesn't have a prescription, where does a person get that drug? So my my addiction started with prescription. I needed the pain medicine, and this is true. Opioids aren't evil in and of themselves. They aren't bad. They are things that when properly dosed and when properly given uh, are appropriate for a lot of pain patients. And even right now, we've seen an overreaction where pain patients who had responsible prescribing aren't able to get the medicine they need anymore. We've seen an uptick in suicides from chronic pain patients. And so there are people who get it through a prescription. And then there's a lot of the pills that have been diverted. So there were some instances of doctors running what they called pill mills, where they would see 100 plus patients a day for just a few minutes apiece and write them prescriptions. And those people would then sell them on the black market, often in places where they didn't have a lot of other economic opportunity. It was one of the only things they could do to make money. Then the other place that you see it coming from is street drugs. So uh-huh. really, the, there's very little difference besides purity and medical, medical uh, levels of control between the drugs I was on in the hospital and heroin. The, uh, the word uh, endorphins, I think that's the way you said it. Endorphins in the brain? Yes. So yeah, that's what well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, chemical process in the brain. Uh, when, when you laugh, for instance, uh, they are released in significant amounts. Uh, so much so, the Norman Thomas, one of our uh, American uh, broadcasters and writers uh, who has long since passed away, but he had cancer and had uh, been given uh, six months to live. Uh, and uh, he went to a hotel and got some uh, old uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy uh, movies and uh, played them uh, in his hotel room, laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. And he was cured of the cancer. He laughed himself healthy, uh, which is a fascinating thing, which says something about the power of this uh, chemical reaction in the brain when there's pleasure. And you're saying uh, it's easy to get addicted because these uh, opioids uh, basically do the same thing. They create this euphoria. Yeah, so part of what I think about addiction is addiction isn't dangerous because it always lies. It's dangerous because it only tells part of the truth. And so what can be a temporary important uh, relief of pain and anguish can eventually become destructive. And that's where we see in my own life, I started off and it was essential. The doctors thought that I might have died. The amount of stress that my body was under, I had what they called acute necrotizing pancreatitis. The amount of stress my body was under, I might not have survived. Uh-huh. At the same time, when I kept going back to that pain medicine, I had learned to associate that with comfort, with relief, with connection. And that, that association gets so deep in my brain, that was when it passed the point of a simple dependence on the chemical into an addiction where what at first started as an important medicine then became something that was out of control. And I got to the point where, as Paul describes, I kept doing the things that I didn't want to do, and I didn't do the things that I wanted to do. And that's where addiction, I don't think, is so much a separation between people, that there's somehow a group of people who are quote-unquote addicts and the rest are not. Mm-hmm. I think I, addiction is something that the processes live in each of our lives, and we need to be aware of that, that it is part of the human condition. I'm talking to uh, Timothy McMahon-King, 
I'll say that again, Timothy McMinn King, and uh, he's written a book called Addiction Nation. Now, it's about what's going on here in the United States, and you folks over there in the United Kingdom undoubtedly are facing the same kind of problems that we face, and that's why we thought it would be important for him to be on the show and to be interviewed. Um, You ultimately uh, turned from the opioids to uh, spiritual solutions to your problem. Uh, You began to find in meditation and prayer uh, deliverance uh, that made uh, the addiction go away, or let me say, uh, your dependence on opiates uh, diminish. Uh, Could you tell us about your spiritual journey and how your relationship to to Jesus uh, played in a part in overcoming this addiction? So one of the interesting things with addiction is, for me, my journey was deeply spiritual, but at the same time, it's important to understand that addiction is also a medical condition. And while spirituality was a part of my recovery, it isn't necessarily for everyone, and it's important to also emphasize those evidence-based medical approaches to addiction. And what actually was a turning point for me was the fact that my doctor was trained in a methodology called motivational interviewing that flips on its head our typical understanding of addiction, where he started not with trying to blame me or shame me, into changing my behavior, but acknowledging what was at the core of my motivation, that I had been in the hospital, I had been scared for my life, I had been in pain, and that I was seeking to alleviate those things. And so he saw that I was after a certain kind of moral good, as opposed to just in a reckless pursuit of pleasure. And that wasn't just true in my life, I think that's true of all addiction. And he was able to through that acknowledgement, drop my own defenses and help me understand my relationship with that substance better. And that was where, for me, I then had that spiritual journey of coming back to, I have stuck in my head so often that somehow it's through violence or punishment or just berating myself enough that I will change. When in reality, the truth is that we believe through seeing um, what happened with Jesus on the cross is that it is ultimately grace that redeems us, not violence. And that this is something that is true, not just as a, like, for a unique set of Christians, but I believe Christ was revealing something that is true about all of creation, about all humanity, that the greatest change that we experience in our lives is through experiencing that undeserved gift of grace. That was what was true for me, and I think that's true for people in recovery, regardless of whether or not they are part of the Christian tradition or any religious tradition at all. You're going to have to spell that out for our listeners a little more. Grace. How does one experience grace, as you did, in the context of, of an addiction? And while you're at it, you could also answer this question. Why should someone, especially someone who has uh, not struggled with addiction, uh, why should that person go out and get this book and read this book uh, in, entitled Addiction Nation? Uh, wh- wh- what is the grace factor operating in your lo- own life? Uh, how did that work? And secondly, why should someone who is not an addict uh, get this book? So one of the best 
best ways, I think, to describe this is by some research done by two folks, Leek and King. They went to three different alcohol recovery centers and took a look at the backgrounds of all of the patients being treated there. And then they made a list. And it was the list of the people they said were most likely to recover from their addiction. And they gave that list to the staff and the counselors at the addiction center. And so then they go away and come back a year later to see how their predictions fared. And sure enough, they were spot on. Everyone on their list was more likely to get sober and stay sober, more likely to have a job and keep that job. And if they relapsed, it was shorter and less severe. So everyone wanted to know what was it that they had discovered that was such a powerful predictor of whether or not someone would recover. And the big reveal was nothing. They had randomly assigned every person to that list. The only thing that had changed was the expectations of the staff and the counselors. And so in my life, the grace that was there was anything from the fact that I had health insurance. I was working at Sojourners at the time and I was out of work for nine months, but they kept my job for me. So I had something worth going back to and motivating me to, to change and to enter into my own recovery. And so those were things that were given to me, a grace that I had that not a lot of other people experience. And so when I think about why should someone else read this book, first of all, I want everyone to understand that they could be that kind of grace to another person, whether they know it or not. At that time, I had neighbors who didn't know I was struggling with this addiction. I had a friend who was starting a church who didn't know I was struggling with this addiction. And the ways they reached out to me and were supportive of me and a connection for me helped me through that process, even though they didn't know what I was going through. And the second thing is, I think that on a medical level, it's important to be able to distinguish between addiction or just a bad habit. But on a spiritual level, there's a truth that we all struggle with addiction. It's just that alcohol and drugs are sometimes the most obvious. And that when we look at addiction, we look at those greatest moments of trying to understand why don't we follow through on the things we do want to do? Why do we do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things we want? Why are we in that place that Paul so well describes? And that addiction is just that writ large. And so if you want to understand how people change, if you want to understand how people sustain that and what community looks like and the importance of it, I think addiction is a perfect place to start in understanding how we can change inside our own communities and how we can address addiction on a societal level as well. Thank you. I do want to remind our audience that I'm talking to Timothy Mackman King. He's written a book called uh, Addiction Nation. And uh, it's uh, dealing with uh, his own experiences and the experiences of others who have gotten addicted to opioids. Now, let me just uh, uh, say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, you mentioned that you took a good look at uh, what Alcoholics Anonymous uh, did for people and got them over the addiction to uh, alcoholic beverages. Uh, the two things that I think that uh, stand out when I think about Alcoholics Anonymous— are things that you mentioned. Number one, uh, that it's not the individual struggling with the problem alone, but a community, a group of people uh, who care about this person. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous creates a, a intense fellowship in which people share with one another and support one another and encourage one another. Uh, so uh, addictions are not easy to overcome 
by individual effort, but by community support. The other thing is I think about in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is that uh, they usually say uh, you have to recognize that you're weak and you need to depend on God, uh, depend on as the uh, transcendent force of the universe. And uh, uh, those two things were operative in AA, and you're suggesting that those things were operative in your life. Absolutely. And one of the things that we normally think about addiction just with that kind of chemical substance, that it's the substance that holds all of the addiction. There's some research done back in the 70s where they noticed that whenever they studied addiction in rats, they were always in these little cages and isolated. And then the rats would press this little lever to get some morphine or to get some cocaine in their water, and they would keep doing that until they died. And then this one researcher, Bruce Alexander, said, what if we put the rats inside a big cage with each other, with friends and mates and little bits of wood to play with, and we're going to call it Rat Park, and it's going to be a great place for rats to live. And then we'll (laughs) put those same water bottles with morphine or cocaine in there and see how they react. And yes, some of them did still get addicted, but they found that there was no level of addiction like it was when those rats were in those isolated little cages. And so the lesson there that I think we need to understand in the American context, or maybe it's the European context, is to ask, are there ways that our society today is a lot more like those isolated cages where people feel disconnected from each other, a lack of meaning and a lack of purpose that drive people to use a substance instead of looking for some sort of meaning in their life that is transcendent of themselves and of their own pursuits? And I think that's one of the great challenges and why we need to look at this as a society and as a community and not just as an individual issue. During the interview that I've been having with uh, Timothy McMahon King, author of the book uh, Addiction Nation, uh, he mentioned several times uh, his support from uh, his workplace. He worked with Sojourners. Sojourners is a, a community that puts out a magazine called Sojourners. It's popular across the United States among Christians and is well-known in the United Kingdom. Uh, The founder and editor is uh, uh, Jim Wallace, uh, W-A-L-L-I-S, Jim Wallace, popular speaker around the world, but especially in the United Kingdom. And uh, I just wanted to uh, introduce our people over there in the United Kingdom to the fact that your relationship with uh, Sojourners was important because they held you in love, and they uh, maintained your job options uh, even over the several-month period when you were unable to be employed. So thank God for Sojourners and the kind of uh, support community. Would that all companies uh, would function like that, would recognize when somebody has a problem with addiction that the answer is not to fire them or saying, well, you can't work here anymore. We need more uh, support and more community and love in the workplace. Well, we're coming now to the end of our show, Tim, uh, and I want to once again promote the book Addiction Nation uh, by Timothy McMahon King, and uh, I'm sure you can get that book via Amazon. Around the world it's available. Uh, He uh, talks about his own experiences, and um, he talks about the way in which community medical help, he emphasized that, and his own spiritual uh, disciplines uh, all work together to help him through a very difficult time. 
Well, it's near the end of the show, and uh, I want to again emphasize that uh, on this show, we try to promote a red-letter Christianity. Go to the website, redletterchristians.org. Find out what we're about. We're evangelicals in our theology, but we don't want to be called evangelical anymore because the word evangelical has been politicized into being synonymous with support for Donald Trump. That's not who we are. We uh, believe that uh, Jesus transcends political allegiance. Jesus transcends partisan politics. Jesus stands above the political system and brings judgment on them and also affirmation where these systems are functioning in accord with God's will. Thank you for listening. And Tim, thanks for being on the show today. Blessings on all of you out there in Radio Land. We're glad you took time to listen in today. Blessings and have a good day.